This is chapter 170 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we close out this challenging year with two books that channel the two biggest stories of the year and all the angst, fear, and even hope that have come along with them. If there's one book I've read this year that really captures all the fears and worries 2020 has wrought, it's We Hear Voices, the new science fiction horror novel from author Evie Green. Sidebar, Evie Green is actually established young adult author Emily Barr. She took on a pen name for her horror debut. Now, the story centers around a mysterious and deadly flu that takes its toll on children around the world. Can you see what I'm getting at? There are survivors, but they're left with a strange side effect, an imaginary friend who isn't always that friendly. There's so much bad news surrounding the coronavirus outbreak, but I have to tell you that after reading this book, I take consolation in the fact that COVID has had a minimal impact on children because boy, oh boy, would I be really terrified right about now. (laughs) What inspired the story of a, a flu-like pandemic that either kills kids or, or leaves survivors with imaginary friends. I suppose I started off with the story of the imaginary friend that gets out of hand. That was what I wanted to write about, a child with an imaginary friend that becomes more and more sinister. And then I, I hit on the, the flu pandemic as a way of actually something that kicked that off, something that kicked off the imaginary friend that could have happened to other children as well. And so I, I invented this pandemic. This was written um, before before the current pandemic. So I thought I was happily inventing something entirely fictional. And then I finished writing it and along comes a real pandemic. But as you say, at least this one doesn't have a, um, a particular effect on, on small children and doesn't leave them, as far as we know, with voices in their heads. I have to ask you what you thought this year, knowing your book was coming out towards the end of the year. You know, there's nothing you could really do about it. As 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 you were yeah. seeing the current events and the news going, were you thinking, "Oh boy, what are, what are people yeah. going to think?" <laughs> I was. I I finished the last. I, I checked the dates of this, um, and I finished the very last bit of editing in November 2019. So, just as I think there were beginning to be reports coming out of China that I was taking no notice of whatsoever. So it's very strange because I think I. I don't want it to look like I very quickly wrote a pandemic book to try and cash in on the, the terrible things that have happened this year because it's it's not that at all. And if I'd known this was coming, I probably would have found a different method to get um, the voices into the children's heads. It's been it's been very very strange. And some things I I thought I'd invented in the book, and now they've just become real life, like wearing face masks on public transport in London. I I thought that was fiction when I was writing it, and now it's. It's just the real law and and many other things as well. It's it's become all too real. Although it's 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 interesting to read it, having gone through everything we've gone through, because we should note that this book doesn't take place in the present or even like an alternative timeline in the present. It is set in the somewhat near future. It is yes, it's set in the, in the near future, and um, the. I was trying to piece together how I thought people in my new future world would would deal with a pandemic, which, as you say, is very different from from COVID nineteen um, because it's it affects people differently and it's and because it's not real. So I was trying to piece together how I thought the world would respond to it. It's very very strange then to see how the world really does respond to something quite similar. 
very, very odd. I want to go back to the imaginary friends because that really is the the crux of the book. You have children. Have mm-hmm. they had imaginary friends? Is that what you worked off of? They haven't actually. No, they. My, I have three children. My middle one has. He was. He, he's seventeen now. He would not thank me if he could hear me saying this. But he was very, very attached to a little cuddly teddy type toy. He had to go to sleep, and he. He gave this um, this teddy a name as soon as he could speak. It was one of the first things he said was was naming um, this this bear Babu. It was one of the first things he said, and he he's always been very very attached to it. And he's still he's still got like Babu sitting there somewhere um, tucked away in his bedroom. But they haven't really had imaginary friends that didn't have any kind of physical manifestation. I think I used to be quite jealous when I was a child of people who had imaginary friends because I thought it was really cool and weird, but I I never had one of my own and my children didn't have one. I just love the idea of them. I think I would put all of those feelings into writing little stories when I was little. So I'd I'd write down my imaginary friends. I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but it's I think I can safely say that these imaginary friends don't turn out to be exactly as benign as some people might think. And this is not the first time in literature where you know, imaginary friends have, have had a bit of a dark streak. What do you what do you mm-hmm. think inspires that in people to just not trust these things that kids make up in their heads? Yeah, I think kids are weird, aren't they? They can be. And I, I, I remember when mine was small, like sometimes with a baby, you'll see them, they'll just be staring at something and there isn't anything there. And I remember a few times getting really freaked out by a, a baby or toddler just they look like they're looking at someone and then you look and there isn't anybody and you're like, who are you talking to? Who are you looking at? I think because they can't articulate when they're very small what what's going through their head, it can make them a little bit spooky. And I think spooky children is a bit of a staple of um, of this kind of literature of, of horror sci-fi. Where I think we just love it, don't we? I absolutely love a, a story about a spooky child and that's why I, I really enjoyed writing this one. Rachel is the mom of your story, and she really mm-hmm. ends up being torn between the love for her her child, who's starting to do increasingly disturbing things because of this imaginary friend of his, and the fear of him, and admitting what that fear means for the rest of her family and the current situation. It's really this delicate balancing act that, as a mother, you hope nobody ever has to face. Absolutely. Yes, it is. I think that that's in a way it's every parent's nightmare is if you have to come up against a situation where your child is potentially doing something terrible and you're their parent. So you you support them all the time. But at the same time, if they're doing something really unthinkably awful, as might or might not not happen in my book, um, how do you support your child? And then at the same time, you can't stand by and watch watch them doing things that are going to harm other people. So it's it's an awful situation for a parent. And I think that a lot of people, parents or not, um, would just really hope never to be in that situation where somebody you love unconditionally is, is doing something absolutely shocking. To be stuck in the middle of that is very much what Rachel's um, feeling. She wants to be there. It's hard without saying what, he, what he's actually done, but she wants to be there for Billy while he's done something so dreadful that really nobody else is going to be on his side. And of course, like like every uh, horror story involving children, there's always more than one up to some mischief, isn't there? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes, there's, um, 
yeah, Billy's not the, the only one um, suffering in this way, it turns out. Now, there's a little bit of hope at the end, but you kind of throw some cold water on it. And it had me wondering, um, are we inevitably doomed or is there always something that we can do to like ward off the situation that unfolds in your book? Yeah, I, I, I don't think I think if you if we felt we were we were inevitably doomed, that would be pretty grim. I think there are lots of things we can do. My my book set in a, a kind of worst case near future, I suppose, where um climate change is so bad that that people are looking to set up um bases on another planet and so climate change is very advanced. Um the people who've got the money are keep themselves very insulated for everybody else who hasn't got any money. Um which is London London now has a huge housing crisis in that it's really difficult to find somewhere affordable to live. So I because my book's set in future London, I push that forward a little bit more. So the inequalities are more pronounced. It's it's not it's not what I hope the future is going to be like, but it is a version of what the future could be like. I think there are a lot of people in the States who can totally relate with that because in certain cities, I'm talking to you from New York, where, where housing is a huge mm-hmm. thing. So I it, yeah. people will totally see where you're going. And, and I think there are a lot of people who are fearful of that future where there is even a greater gap between the haves and the have-nots. Yes, exactly. That's that's one of the, the worst things to see at the moment, I think. In um, in all a lot of Western societies, COVID seems to have made things worse in that if you're, like say you're, you're on a lockdown in quarantine and you're stuck in your home, but suddenly the home you have makes such a difference. If you've got a huge garden, then it's not such a hardship if you're stuck in, in a tiny apartment. It's really, really mentally difficult. So I think that 2020 has, has really sharpened that up in, in people's minds because it, it makes it so clear that, that life is, needs to be in the same situation, but life can be completely different depending on just whether you've got any money in the bank or not. It's terrible. I'm almost afraid to ask you what you're working on next, because considering how prescient <laughs> this this book was. <laughs> um, nothing, nothing so bad. I'm um, well. I'm hoping to. I've got I've got an outline of a book I would like to write about um, some a couple who who get a, a replacement daughter who's a robot when their daughter is in an accident. So that's quite fun. But I don't think we're going to be getting robot children anytime soon. Maybe, maybe not. I'm also working on some more YA fiction, which is, which is, um, yeah, not not so scary. <laughs> so, Evie, before I let you go, the one the one last thing I want to ask you is, you know, 2020 has been a year. What are you looking forward to in 2021? Oh, I'm looking forward to travelling. I know that um, here here in Britain, once we get our, the COVID vaccines and hopefully all of that will pass, then I want to get on a train and go to Europe, which obviously we do have a few issues with that now. But I'm, I'm not a fan of Brexit and it's it's like the next thing around the corner. But however much more difficult it might be, I there's nothing I like better than um, get, you can get on a train in the centre of London and get off it in the centre of Paris two hours later, and I just can't wait to do that. I think a lot of people are feeling you, myself included. <laughs> We've been talking to Evie Green. The new book is We Hear Voices. Thank you for spending some time with us today to talk about it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Aside from COVID, 
I'd argue the second biggest story of the year has been the fight for racial equality and justice. From Minneapolis to New York to Paris to Ottawa, people have taken to the streets this year to protest the unfair and violent treatment of communities of color. Catherine Hernandez taps into the fears and worries of what the future might hold if no changes are made in her latest novel, Crosshairs. Set in a near future where floods have resulted in rampant homelessness and devastation, a government-sanctioned regime seizes on the opportunity to round up communities of color, the disabled, and the LGBTQ into labor camps. And yet, despite it all, there is hope. I had a frank conversation with Catherine about why it's okay that her book made me feel uncomfortable. There are a lot of adjectives to describe this book and and feelings that I had while reading it. It's powerful. It's thought-provoking. It's disturbing. It's brave. It's downright scary. What drove you to write this particular story? Well, after the Pulse Massacre um, that uh, happened in Florida, um, many people around the world, a lot of people from the QT BIPOC population, so that's queer, trans, Black, Indigenous, people of color, a lot of us were wondering whether or not we should arm ourselves, if we should learn to fight back uh, because of the rise of the far right. And um, it, was a, it was a horrible question to ask ourselves, is like to, to ask if we should become those kinds of people that would bear arms uh, to protect ourselves. Uh, but then from there came the question, you know, what is the price of fighting back? What is the price of staying passive in the face of fascism? And that's where the book came from. It came from that, the, like those two big questions. And like, you know, what are the difficult, question, difficult questions that we have to pose to ourselves uh, in the face of war? Um, and so uh, uh, that's where it all started. And it became, um, you know, this, this process of interviewing folks who have survived war and genocide, asking them about the difficult questions that they've had to make. And based on that, that's where the book was born. That had to be some very difficult research for you to undertake. It was because there's something about researching something that seems so far off from your own lived experience. And then there's something about researching something that could possibly be your lived experience over the coming years. And we're seeing that now with a shortage of resources is that people are very quick to sort of point fingers as to who uh, should be entitled to it and who shouldn't be. Um, uh, And uh, most definitely, I know that my community, you know, uh, racialized folks, um, the disabled, the elderly, um, queer folks, uh, is that we're oftentimes a scapegoat in political regimes. And so I, I, I wanted to really show that like that there was terror in writing it there was also terror in presenting it um yeah and all of those things uh, definitely it was it was a lot of feelings a lot of trauma writing it i want to back up just a little bit can you tell our listeners what the story is about absolutely so crosshairs uh is about a um uh, is about uh, qt bipoc uh disabled elderly folks um having to take arms against a fascist regime that is putting those populations into workhouses following environmental devastation and financial collapse, much like what we are seeing now in today's world is like, you know, we're watching this um, like worldwide uh, 
fascism because of a lack of resources. And um, uh, and so the resistance emerges uh, led by these other people, these marginalized communities, uh, but supported by a body of um, allies. When I was reading it, I couldn't help but think that this was a, a, a future Holocaust in the making. What you see happening to um, the Rohingya uh, in Myanmar uh, was definitely a big influence for this book about how people, um, how, what fascinated me was like how in, in present day we can really influence how populations are able to move through this world, able to make money, um, how, how much they can uh, sort of uh, relocate themselves, uh, all of these things. And that's what really fascinated me about um, the, the genocide against Rohingya folks today, um, because um, there's definitely the use of current day technology uh, in that particular genocide um, with like ID cards and stuff like that, that really state whether or not you have access to certain um, roads, you have access to certain resources. Um, so uh, yeah, there, there were many, there were many, sadly, there were enough genocidal campaigns that I was able to draw upon for the research for this book. Is there any way to stop this from going any further than it already has so we don't end up in that future that you've created? You know, as terrifying as the book is, the truth is, is that the book is a play-by-play for hope. Um, I think that there are countless pieces of media, literature, that really love to watch um, marginalized communities suffer. Uh, however, this book, I, I really wanted to challenge myself that we are seeing a group of people rising up and um, also that allies are able to embody um, embody allyship. So they are believing with their whole bodies that everyone has um, a right to live and love in this world and has a right to equal equal resources. And so uh, in the book, I don't want to give too much away, but there is definitely like an allyship creed, which I'm hoping that when people read this book is that people of a certain amount of privilege are able to adopt as a daily practice um, that uh, you... um, you are led by the needs of marginalized communities. Uh, you don't take up space. Uh, you, um, you know when you are corrected, you accept the correction and uh, you do better. Um, all of these things like, are really important for people to understand is that the book is terrifying because it is real. And at the same time, just as real are the possibilities of what your body can do in the face of um, in the face of fascism. I'm glad you brought that part of the book up because I have to be honest that that I found that to be the most difficult part of the book for me because as you know mm-hmm. as a cis white woman, I have a certain amount of privilege, and mm-hmm. I may think I'm doing things the right way, but I realize. I'm I might not be. And it was really eye opening to see uh, there are things I can do to change to make things better or to Absolutely. be better. And I, yeah. Yeah. And that's the, the thing is that I, I think that it's actually a good thing that it's felt uncomfortable and that it's felt difficult um, because most likely that means that you're on the right path. Um, allyship doesn't feel easy. It actually does feel uncomfortable because you have to um, really look at your privilege in the face and say, well, 
what can I do to make this world a better place? And what does that mean? What kind of discomfort do I have to endure in order to make sure that people have equal access to resources? Um, and uh, when when and that me- might mean stepping aside. That might mean being quiet. That might mean just listening, um, being corrected. All of those things. Um, and uh, that discomfort is. Um, I think it's important for all of us to wait through, including myself being, even though I am brown, queer, and feminine, I am a cisgender person who has uh, lived a life as an Asian presenting person. Um, and that means that I have much, much more privilege than indigenous folks and black folks and trans folks. Um, uh, I've always had access to water uh, and I don't have to worry about my child being taken away by child services. All of these things are very important for me to acknowledge in order for me to be a better ally to those populations. Another theme in this book is this idea of being seen and 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 just, you know, the power that comes in in owning your name and saying your name. What what exactly does that mean? Well, you know, in this reality, in absolute honesty, I do not know how safe my queer family will be in the future. We just don't know um, because uh, we're constantly navigating our safety even just the act of like, you know, my trans family just going to the washroom is uh, a, a question of life and death, right? Um, I, um, I would say that for me, I hope that people read the book and that they know that now is the time, this is a critical time in which they actually have to embody allyship. Um, that it's that uh, this is um, not some kind of uh, fanciful piece of fiction. That this is a truth that a lot of us are are living at the current moment. I know you mentioned that allyship is about listening and standing back. If for people who maybe need a more concrete example, what is the what is one small thing they can do in their day to day to work on the path towards that? Well, okay, so the um, the allyship creed that's in the book is actually created from several interviews from people from, you know, my community saying, like, what would you want allies to do? And those four lines are definitely made from that, is that um, it's, it's uh, to make it it's a daily practice, is that you actually have to practice it just like you would practice yoga, or you would commit to, like, binge watching a show on Netflix, like, you know, like that kind of level of commitment is that it's like every day you have to actually um, practice with your body to step forward if you see wrong happening, centering the hurt, so centering the person who is being harmed and asking them, what do you need and how can I help you? If that, also, if that help means um, please stand aside and listen or please follow my lead, then doing that. Um, and... Um, and, and also just knowing that you're, the, the space you take up, just like really acknowledging the amount of privilege it is just for you to be able to stand there um, in a certain amount of safety is something that's really important for allies to understand. And like you said, I love that this book, while it is dystopian in nature, it does build up to hope, which is what, mm-hmm. what all of us really need to cling to. Yes. Oh, yes. I think that messages of hope are really needed. Um, at this time. Um, and, and I think that it, it's, it's, it's so funny that the message of hope is actually quite uncomfortable for people who are on, um, who, who have privilege, 
whereas it feels quite groundbreaking for people who are who are sitting at the margins. Um, so uh, I just that that's like something to consider is that, you know, hope it sometimes feels uncomfortable <laughs> and to sit with that. It's OK. It's all right. That's uncomfortable. You know, I just want to make a quick note because, you know, I think a lot of uh, American readers might be surprised to learn that we're talking about a story that actually takes place in Canada because most people don't think yes. Canada is that kind of place. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. And that, that's why, I mean, I, there were discussions about, you know, whether or not we make um, the, the if it could the book be in some sort of like unnamed place uh, for international appeal. However, it was very important to me that it took place in Canada because Canadians are extremely talented at marketing themselves to be peaceful, welcoming people. When in actual fact, um, you know, like, for example, uh, we are the second largest mining presence in the Philippines. And because of the environmental devastation that we are causing in that country, we are displacing thousands of people. And yet we like to pat ourselves on the back for welcoming domestic workers to our country to then put them, put these mostly women, mostly Filipino women into dangerous environments to act as caregiver young and our elderly. And the only reason why they're doing forced migration is because of the fact that a lot of them have been displaced because of environmental devastation that we caused in the first place. Like you can see, right? Like how ridiculous this marketing campaign is about Canada being so welcoming. Um, and as well, um, you know, we've, uh, it's been generations of a genocidal campaign against uh, the indigenous folks of Turtle Island. Um, we uh, were definitely, our country was an expert at um, the residential school system that uh, disconnected um, thousands and thousands of families from one another and um, having children, um, you know, uh, they, they were exposed to um, sexual and physical abuse um, in those, in those uh, schools. So, I, I mean, I, and, and still to this day, a lot of our um, uh, Indigenous communities do not have access to clean water and food. So, um, yeah, the, I, th- I thought it, it was very important, and I, I, I made that argument right away, and I was so happy that uh, Atria was um, open to that. Uh, it was very important to me that it did take place in Canada to expose that truth. There's so much that someone can learn from reading this book, and I do hope people go out, and even if it may be an uncomfortable read for them, it's worth, you can't just read and expose yourself to things that make you feel good. Yes. I want to end this interview on a little bit of a high note. 2020 has been a, a tough year for a lot of different reasons. What are your hopes for 2021? You know, similar to that allyship creed, there was a creed that I made for myself when the pandemic had broken out, is that, it, um, is that when I feel like, you know, like all the things that capitalism teaches you, that when I feel like hoarding, I force myself to share. Um, when I feel like things are short and that um, uh, I might not get by, I remember that I'm surrounded by abundance. Things like that. I, I just I feel like this is such a, a wonderful opportunity for all of us to think of new systems of being in relationship with one another. Um, and uh, I, I've never... I've, as, as hard as this time has been, I've never been more hopeful for the tide to change. 
Those are words I think that we can take with us and carry us into the future. Thank you so much. Catherine Hernandez, the new book is Crosshairs. Thank you for spending some time with us and, and really talking to us through this and hopefully opening some minds out there. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's where we close the book on this chapter and the year for that matter. Let's be real. 2020 has been extraordinarily tough for a lot of different reasons. Some of us have had to face the worst and my heart goes out to all of you and all you've had to endure. For some of us, it's just been different and difficult, mentally and emotionally exhausting. I hope you can all find time in this pause between the old and new year to reflect and reset. Because guess what? We've made it. See you in 2020. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.